Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles, and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Amber Lai, a 25-year-old Scottish Chinese F&B PR and marketing professional who was born and raised in Hong Kong. Previously a dining editor, Amber runs a successful food Instagram page at Following My Stomach. She will be telling us about confusions over growing up as a half Chinese person and her journey battling an eating disorder. Thank you for being here, Amber, and welcome to Proudly Asian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. It's a great pleasure to have you because、um, you were one of the first people that I thought of. So、um, I really appreciate that you took the time to chat with us.、Um, yeah. So I mean, to be honest, this is a completely new medium that I'm exploring for myself because previously I, I spent almost、uh, a decade in, in broadcast, but mainly in TV. So、uh, a lot of it would be like very scripted, and it, we would always have to look ready on camera. So I'm starting to embrace this medium. You know, podcast, right? Like we could host it,、um, host this conversation、um, behind the cameras, and you and I could. Well, be in our pajamas, and we could be having our pillow talks. No one will know. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I think to to start off the conversation, I think it would only be right for me to、um, ask for a proper introduction,、um, because I, I'm, I'm guessing our audience would like to know more about your your background. Basically, who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? Well, I may think it makes a little bit of sense that I must be a little bit Asian in terms of the name. So、um, I was born and brought up in Hong Kong, but I'm half Scottish and half Chinese, and I lived here till I went to university in England, and I've just been back for a year now. But being back, it's been a little bit different from when I was growing up, as you kind of mature and start working and everything like that. So it's been really nice to explore Hong Kong in. A new way that I didn't really do when I was growing up here,、um, but I work as an F and B PR and I run my own food blog, which is something that I do in my free time just for fun, and I find it a really good way to kind of explore Hong Kong as well and try everything that it's got, and it's really fun to do. So in a sense,、um, you just moved back、um, last year,、uh, yeah. September twenty twenty, right? Yeah. And、um, how has it been for you? Because as you just mentioned, you you it, it's sort of kind of like a rediscovery of、mm-hmm. of your hometown. Yeah, I think. I mean, growing up as a teenager here, you are sheltered from many things because you are just growing up and you're not aware of everything that's going on in the world. And then you kind of go out. And I went to the UK, and I. Experienced many different people and started working, and then I came back to Hong Kong, and I also started working here. So,、um, and everything is quite different to some other places I've been to. But I think being older and more mature, I've been able to realize what it's got,、um, which many countries doesn't have.、Um, so it's been really interesting to see, and also as I've matured myself and become more self-aware, I kind of see it. How I fit into Hong Kong more than me just being in Hong Kong, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And、um, and if if I could follow up、um, on that,、um, what would be some of the 
the examples that that you are sort of rediscovering about your hometown, or what became obvious um, after you you came back? Well, I think when I was younger here, I was just kind of living life and taking advantage of everything that was available in Hong Kong without really appreciating it for what it was. And we also, you know, when you're growing up, you just kind of live off your parents and use their money and go do everything. And I didn't really appreciate, you know, what I was given to me on a silver platter. And then now I'm a bit older and I have to do things for myself. I kind of see all the elements that Hong Kong has. So appreciating, you know, being able to go out and eat foods from different cultures so easily and meet people from every part of the world just by going out five minutes. Um, So it's definitely been a bit of a shock in my system, kind of coming back and seeing what's so good about Hong Kong. Yeah, I can totally relate because um, that's in the conversations of a lot of um, expats or like people who have some sort of Hong Kong roots. They mm-hmm. would always say, "Oh, the the beauty of the city is yeah. always, you know, the safety, mm-hmm. right? Like it's 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 possible for girls to walk Around. in the evenings at." at you know, um, alone. And also everything is just within, you know, two hours distance. Yeah. And a lot of the places are completely walkable as well, as opposed to um, other places around the world. But um, I want to, I want to go back to your, your background mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, basically your family. So your mom is Scottish. Yeah, my mom's Scottish, my dad's Chinese. Exactly. So um, how, how was it growing up with a Scottish mom and a Chinese dad? Quite funny. I mean, I think a lot of the times people would, when they found out I was mixed, they would always say, oh, so your dad must be the white one. Your mom might be the Asian. I was like, no, it's the other way around for me. Um, it was really interesting because I did get to experience two very different cultures. Um, with that, though, there's always a little bit of a struggle because to me, um, especially my parents divorced at quite a young age. So I grew up with two very different cultures and then those two got separated even more. And because I would spend weekends with one and then live with another, it kind of made it a little bit hard to juggle the two. Um, So my dad being Chinese, um, I I ended up living with my mum as well, which meant that I had a lot more of the Western side when I was growing up. It meant that I lost a lot of wealth of my Chinese culture from my dad. So that was the whole thing about me speaking of when I was living here, I was kind of just given and took what was handed to me. And now I'm back and discovering Hong Kong again um, as an individual myself. I am kind of wanting to tap back into the culture that I think I didn't appreciate as much when I was growing up because I didn't have them, you know, the care to really. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if I could ask, like, what kind of influence that you got from both of your parents, you know, from your mom and from your dad, um, what what were some of the things that they influenced you the most culturally or personally? Um, well, it was not as much for culture, but just my parents' personalities, I think, which influenced me the most. So for my mom, there's a lot of freedom and emotions. And while with my dad, it was hard for me sometimes because I took his strength maybe as mm, trying to control. But now that I'm older, I see that that was just the way he loved. Um, and that's different. While my mom was very emotional, so it was easier for me to connect with her. And while my dad was kind of always put a hard face on and said, no, you need to do this, you need to do that. It was more because he was trying to make me stronger. 
Um, and now that I'm older, I appreciate that a lot more than when I did when I was 16. <laughs> I guess um, a lot of Asian kids could relate to that. They, yeah. they used to wonder about like, why is my mom forcing me to do this and mm-hmm. that? And um, now when we think about, you know, our childhood is always you. probably for the better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, I wish I'd paid more attention when I was growing up to wanting to learn Chinese when my dad was asking me to. And now that I'm 25 and I'm trying to learn now and struggling, I think back and, you know, I should have listened to him a bit more. Um, So it is all these things that I'm just realizing now I'm a bit more mature and aware of people being different and how that's a good thing, really, rather than thinking, oh, they're disagreeing with me. That's not something that I want. That's not how I think. They're trying to push me into something that I don't want to do. So as you mentioned, um, you, you're very aware of um, the white privilege issues um, within your family. So now you're more mature, you're more aware of, you know, who you are and what the, you know, the, the issues could be. Like, is it going to influence you um, to approach things a bit differently or are you going to try to make um, changes to the situation? I mean, there's a few ways I've tried to make changes for myself personally, learning Chinese. Um, and being able to be more, you know, obviously Chinese rather than trying to hide that part of my life, which I used to when I was younger. That's a huge thing because I don't want to just be seen as a white person now in Hong Kong. Um, also sharing a lot more light on Chinese food and, um, you know, local food and how great it is rather than only supporting international places as as good as they are of course um i want to make sure people know what's really hong kong and what's really you know true to the culture we have here rather than just showcasing you know michelin star and fine dining and everything like that right and and i mean i I just would i would like to walk back a little bit like in hong kong in your own um in your own um city do you are you treated as a hong konger you think um Personally, not really. I think just because I look more white than I look Chinese. Um, and when I speak Chinese, then people know that I'm from Hong Kong. So it really brings me a lot of happiness to be able to speak Chinese now. Um, and when I say I'm from Hong Kong, people really find that, you know, it connects me to people rather than them just thinking that I'm Western. So I do like to tell people that I'm from Hong Kong and be able to, you know, make them see that rather than just looking right yeah nice and i mean it's good that when, when you start speaking cantonese at least they they would be ah you're from hong kong instead of like oh you are a guaimui who yeah. who can speak, speak some chinese, chinese yeah. right um or, or like i say to people now like oh i sing lai which is like i, I mean i might have not pronounced that the best but saying like my chat last my chinese my last name is chinese and um you know, it's just nice things like that, like being able to actually connect with people and say, "Yeah, that's this it. is who I am. I'm not just coming back and taking advantage of Hong Kong and not getting involved in the culture here. Like I want to be fully fledged Hong Kong, Hong Konger. Yeah, and uh, you, you're probably the, the walking example of, you know, all the different Asians or different types of people who mm. who could be Hong Kongers because, of course, in Hong Kong, it's, it's a very diverse city. It's not just like Hong Kong Chinese. Mm-hmm. We could have um, South Asians who, who were born and raised in, in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong as well. So you really are one of the examples. But, um, yeah, but I, I would say sometimes... Um, 
like people who apparently did not grow up in Hong Kong and um, don't speak Chinese or don't speak the language, but if they have a Chinese face or Asian face, they they would sometimes face the problem of like when they are trying to speak um, Cantonese, like they would get. Um, a look of disgust from yeah. from from the locals. They're like, ah, oh, you look Chinese, but how come you don't speak, speak Chinese? Yeah, so it's going both ways, really. <laughs> yeah. So um, now, d- despite your racial identity and and what others see you, of course, um, the question is, what do you see yourself as, really? It's a very loaded question. <laughs> I definitely think I'm a Hong Konger. Like I was born here, I was brought up here. Um, I never saw myself coming back, though, just because when I grew up, I didn't feel very comfortable in terms of society here. And I think a lot of that was because I had a little bit of identity crisis of which part did I fit into? Was I Western? Was I Chinese? Um, And then I went away to university. And when I went away, I kind of realized how much I did love being in Hong Kong. And, And then I moved to London again struggled with it a little bit um and I came back to Hong Kong because of COVID and when I came back properly in September two nearly two years ago now that's when I really realized I was like no I do really like it here I want to give it another go and see if I can make the most out of it now right so that that was kind of um when you were in uni or when you're not in Hong Kong that's when you had this kind of moment of um you can't really take Hong Kong out of the girl yeah definitely (laughs) Right. I would like to talk a little bit more about um, the the identity crisis that you mentioned, mm-hmm. because I remember when I was speaking to you previously, you, you did mention a little bit about how um, your identity brought you a bit of emotional trauma yeah. and um, confusion, which you, yeah. you did mention. So could you go a little bit more um, specific into that? Um, what was the, the confusion that was going on um, growing up as, as a half Asian kid? For me, this was definitely be from my two parents' side because they were so different. Um, and like I said, my parents were divorced. So I kind of went in between the two different cultures a lot. And um, I was a lot closer with my mother as well. So I kind of connected more with the Western side, but I still loved my dad and all my Asian family, but I didn't see them very much and I didn't know very much about them, but I was living in Hong Kong, so they were 20 minutes away. So because I didn't connect with them as much, I didn't really know if I fit in with them. And then also in terms of society, like when I was growing up, when you're a young kid, you're so easily, you know... um, everyone around you changes how you think of yourself. So when I would go out and I would want to be with Westerners because they were going out clubbing and they maybe had more money and I got influenced into thinking that that was the life I wanted to live rather than, you know, being with my local friends who were just having quieter lives and didn't do the things that I saw as fun because that's what I saw on TV or celebrities doing. So I never really knew where I should go or what I should do. And I try to fit into different groups without really thinking what I wanted to do myself. Mm -hmm. So this identity crisis was always not really understanding if I fit into one because I was half. I didn't feel comfortable to be just with the Westerners or just with the Chinese because I wasn't Western enough to be Western and I wasn't Chinese enough to be Chinese. I was always the Chinese girl with the Westerns or the Western girl with the Chinese. And some people say it wouldn't matter that much, but it really did at the end of the day. Um, It wasn't until I went to university and came back that 
I realized, and I think people matured with me as well, that it doesn't matter so much as long as you are who you are and you stand for who you are. Yeah, I could definitely relate how you, you mentioned as a kid, we like who we are, who we think we are would sort of be influenced by how others, you know, yeah, uh, see you. us, right? And um, and you you did also mention you were not connected to your dad's side mm-hmm. as much. But as a kid, did, did you ever wish that you, you knew a little bit more yeah, about the other side? Yeah, it was something I always, and you don't appreciate as well because it's right in front of you. Um, you know, the UK to me, I wanted to be able to have, you know, the holidays there or the shops there or the chocolate there because it wasn't something that I could get every day. So, of course, you know, going to eat local food with my dad on the weekend seemed boring because I could do it whenever, you know. So it was it was hard in that sense because it wasn't available to me, so it made me want it more. Um, but, yeah. And and now you, you're 25 and um, you you are more aware of what you want. Um, so what, what kind of life do you want for yourself? Do you still want to um, do what, you know, most Westerners do, like clubbing on the weekends? <laughs> Is this something that you still want? Is this still part of you? I mean, I do still enjoy it, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I'm loving um, exploring Hong Kong more, going to the different neighborhoods, taking my time out and living a bit of a quieter life. I mean, it's still fun to go out, definitely, but it gets tiring, too. (laughs) Yeah, and you're 25, and it's going to get, you know, more tiring. Tiring. (laughs) Yeah, like, I'm loving, especially now it's cooler, like, going and walking around and kind of appreciating all the different landscapes in Hong Kong, spending time with friends more. Yeah, and... um, and and one of the last questions on on your family um, background mm-hmm. as well. Um, of course, you're half Scottish. Um, has anyone asked you you're half Scottish? Like, how come you don't have a, have Scottish, a Scottish accent? Yes, all the time. <laughs> I mean, my mum's lived in Hong Kong for thirty years now, so the only way I'd have a Scottish accent would be from her, and she's just got a typical standard British one. So, no Scottish accent for me. I can't even do it when I'm drunk. Sadly. <laughs> Um, did, did, did she did, did her accent get neutralized as she moved yeah, to Hong Kong? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's one thing that's interesting as well because as um, expats move to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter where you Just you're get from. A typical accent, exactly. Like it doesn't matter you're Scottish, you're Irish, or American, or whatever. Like when you come to Hong Kong and you've lived here for a few years, you you start getting that neutralized whatever yeah, accent. International accent, <laughs> exactly. international kid accent. I think that's pretty yeah, much what it's exactly. called. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, now I would like to move on um, to your career as well because um, previously you you worked as a dining editor and now you're you're still in F&B as a PR um, comms professional how did it all start for you so for me I just had my food blog um, which is on Instagram and I met someone and she knew that I had my blog and I was really passionate about food and she was looking for someone um, to start working within dining and it just worked out really well Um, so I started working with Nicole Slater at Hong Kong Living and I'm really lucky that she took me on and kind of gave me the platform I had. So it was a really great starting point. It was all about who you knew and just getting the right opportunity at the right time. So I am really lucky and grateful to have been able to start. And it was a really fun job. Was there something that really, when you first started and when you got to know the industry, was there something that really surprised you about the F&B industry? Any 
secrets that you could tell us? <laughs> For me, it was really hard when I started because I started in COVID. So I started at a really strange time. Um, I don't think when I started, it was normal F&B at all because in Hong Kong, there were so many regulations. And when I started, it was literally like closing before six and then 2 p.m. and takeout only. Um, so I don't feel like I had a very real start into F&B because when I started so with my job I do tastings at restaurants like they invite you yeah, how do you taste. do tastings so it was then one-on-one -on -one. you would go in by yourself and then like six months in I really I found out that you actually normally do group tastings which is with like 10 other people and that's so scary and intimidating because you're thrown into a room with 10 strangers and you'll have to eat in front of each other and you don't know any of them <laughs> so I had a very um a very different start into F&B I think Secrets? I can't tell you. They're secrets of the trade. <laughs> I really couldn't. No, F&B is really fun. It's very demanding. It's very fast paced. I think the most important thing about it is you have to adapt because it's all about different trends and what, you know, the consumers want and what every restaurant around you is doing. Um, I don't think there's secrets to it. I just think it's about being able to respond as fast as you can. Or if you don't respond, it's being so strong in what you believe that people just come to you. Yeah. Which is really hard. And hangry customers are yeah, the worst. They are hard. <laughs> and I know because I am a hangry customer sometimes. So I have oh, a hangry editor back in the day. Pretty much. Yeah. So do, do you see yourself still um, sticking around in the F&B industry for yeah. long? I really love it because you have the chance to connect with people who are very passionate whether it's the team you work with or people who come in to have your food. I mean, food connects people. It's one of the most important things in our lives. Whether you love it or you not, you don't, you have to eat to survive. So being able to give that to people, but also giving another sort of pleasure with it, it's a really nice thing to be able to do. I don't cook, but what I do, you know, promotes what the chefs in my company cook. So to be able to tell people about that and let people know what we offer and what we do and transfer that information in something that's readable. It's a really interesting job to do. I definitely agree because um, your job is, is key in terms of storytelling within mm -hmm. the F&B industry because a lot of the times chefs' efforts are very underappreciated. Yeah, like people will only judge whether or not the dish in front of them is good or not. Mm -hmm. um, they don't see everything that it takes. To exactly. Make. They don't see the years of, of you know, learning and um skills that the chefs have put into that dish mm -hmm. as well. But since we're talking about dishes, um, do you have a favorite dish um, in your F&B career or, or in your entire life? Was there, what's the most influential dish that you could think of? I mean, that's really hard because I've eaten <laughs> a hell of a lot, maybe too much than I want to <laughs> admit to. But I have two things. It goes back to family, really. Um, one is my mum's thing. We weren't that well off when we were growing up and she would cook something which she called mess for me, which would be when she would literally put everything in the fridge into a pan and just fry it. And it would look horrible, but it would taste good. <laughs> and it was just her way of, you know, saying, this is what we've got and I'm going to try and make it into something great and give it to you. And she literally called it mess. And I love to make stuff like that now. It's something that I still cook. I mean, like, I don't know if you could call it cook. And something which my yeah, yeah would make, um, he would line up. So most of the time when I'd see my dad would be to go over to my yeah, yeah's house, which is your father's father. And he would cook a typical Chinese meal. 
and line the table with that plastic sheet so that you just, you know, you wrap up all the dirty stuff and you just throw That's that in the That's the greatest bin. invention it's though. the best, like <laughs> the chicken wings, you know, the leftover stuff, you just wrap it up and then throw it in. It's so clean. Um, and he would just line up the whole table and I would feel really loved and taken care of. And it was how I kind of spent time with my Chinese family growing up. Nice. And what, what do you still remember what other dishes that you would get he from would, your yeah? I mean, he would cook like four different types of vegetables for us <laughs> because he knew we loved them. So we'd get like broccoli, bak choy, choy sum, um, chicken wings, this really good soup. I still don't know what's in the soup. Like the water chestnuts would float up, or like carrots, bones, rice plain white rice but somehow he cooked rice the best i can't like fluffy. It's so fluffy <laughs> and you know when it's like that perfectly round shape his rice was just the best oh, and i dear. could eat that just with soy sauce or not even soy sauce you that's know? probably the family secret yeah yeah he didn't pass it on to me though it's fine oh <laughs> yeah I, I gotta say chinese soup is always the best like mm-hmm. sometimes when you're having a really bad day or or you know your throat feels dry chinese soup is always the answer because mm-hmm. it's so light but it's so flavorful yeah exactly and now a question on asian food as mm-hmm. well um since you you, you've lived abroad, you, you came back, you, you also grew up in Hong Kong. And um, of course, I, I want to know if you sort of rediscovered the meaning of Asian food and if you have made any observations in terms of how um, Asian food is perceived um, locally and internationally. This is something I struggled with so much <laughs> when I went to university because Asian food in the UK is ridiculous it's not even asian but they will judge asian food like traditional asian food so much so i went to university and i was really excited to like share you know things with my um roommates and i would say like let's go get an asian meal and they would order you know salt and pepper fries or um i mean they would have like char siu bao but it wouldn't even be it would just be like red sauce in the middle um and they would just I would want to order some other things, but no, I don't want to try it. That's weird. And it's like that connotation that different food you haven't had is weird. And I understand sometimes if you don't know about it, you don't know what it is. It's a little bit daunting at first, but it was the, they didn't want to try. They they weren't open to trying um, and always just calling it weird or disgusting and negative connotations rather than just thinking you know what this is a different culture it's not something I've grown up around but I'm gonna give it a go like to me some British food is weird you know toad in the hole why would you put sausages in (laughs) you know like a pudding thing how about black pudding yeah but you know give it a go don't judge it before you try it it's just because it's different doesn't mean it's not nice. Exactly. It just means that. And you don't have to like it, but you should at least give it the respect that it deserves. Yeah, I, I, I do see how like sometimes Chinese food or, or some Asian food items would be seen as, you know, an item that they would only eat when they're in some sort of like... Um, games mm. or if they're like okay I'm, I'm gonna yolo today i'm gonna try yeah. chicken feet yeah <laughs> so i yeah definitely i could relate how um in, in that sense i don't know if it comes off as disrespect for for the food because obviously if some people is like okay I, i'm feeling yolo i'm gonna have asian food today but then and then they eat that and sometimes that's exactly the kind of food that some people grew up with mm. as well yeah i mean like sausages that's minced meat in a intestine skin Mm. but 
so how is it any different to you know and also so I was vegetarian for two years too and I think a lot of my appreciation for food changed when I stopped being vegetarian because I realized I used to be quite picky about meat and then after I became vegetarian at the end of the day if you eat an animal you should be able to eat any part of the animal it shouldn't just be like oh you know I only eat chicken breast if you're killing the animal you should eat every part of it if anything eating the parts that people don't think are as suitable are good because you shouldn't be wasting wasting parts of an animal if it's been killed um so yeah it's just different but as a general observation um since you came back last year do, do you see um the understanding of, of asian food is is improving let's mm. say in the uk um well i've only been back for a year and i haven't really i think there's definitely some more with street food becoming bigger there's a lot of markets and stuff where international people are showcasing more local um dishes so i do think there is slowly going to be more um acceptance of yeah you know different cuisines around the world because my observation may be from let's say 10 years ago asian asian restaurants or um in the uk would probably be kind of like a mashup of you know a bit of japanese a yeah. bit of chinese a bit of indian fusion i mean there's definitely more um markets and street falls street stalls sorry which helps um and i think with social media now there's a lot more ability for people to put different dishes and different cuisines online when before it was kind of you would go to a restaurant and you would just know what they had and not be able to have any knowledge about it but now with Instagram with YouTube with Netflix shows and documentaries there's a lot more appreciation for different cuisines and cultures around the world so hopefully with time it'll definitely get better too exactly and the kind of work you do is very important as well because i think there needs to be more asian professionals within the fmb industry for example um somewhere outside asia because you hear a lot of disaster stories like branding stories of of Asian restaurants elsewhere that's not in Asia where they just do the branding completely wrong it's completely disrespectful I've seen a lot of those examples as well and they don't even have someone Asian exactly there. yeah I'm not saying that I think you need to be from the um, country that the restaurant's based in you can definitely just have an appreciation and have spent your time you know trying to learn but it's that kind of respect and wanting to actually make that authenticity in your food important um which i think those places probably didn't yeah or the best tip for them would be to get maybe insights from a local yeah. or someone who knows the, the culture or the yeah. cuisine that they are selling but um as a dining editor i mean this this is the part that i i guess might be a little bit tougher but is important um because you you suffered from um an eating disorder as well so could you tell us a little bit about that yeah so i came out online a little while ago about my eating disorder which was a very um scary thing because it's something that's very easily judged because of social media and how we represent ourselves and because I have a food page I think I was really nervous of if people would understand where I was coming from because I post about all the food I eat and I think when I explain to people why I got an eating disorder and why my food page is so important to me it kind of makes sense. So for me personally I had a very very strong obsession with food and also an obsession to stay skinny. So I was battling two things which aren't going to be hand in hand obviously. 
But to me, um, it was hard because I wanted to stay skinny, but I was very interested in food. So when I moved away to Amsterdam and I was living by myself, I kind of used my food page as a way, not sorry, not my food page, but food as a way to explore Amsterdam. So I would spend all week, you know, restricting. And then on the weekend, I would want to go find somewhere to go eat in. Um, and it needed to become a perfect meal because I'd restricted so much in the week. And if it wasn't great, if it wasn't everything I wanted, if I chose a dish and then I didn't like it because I chose of what was supposed to be the best, I'd be so disappointed. And it became this thing that food had to be amazing. Food had to be perfect. And then I would post a picture of it because it was so good. And even if it wasn't good, I would try to convince myself that it was worth it because lo and behold, I had calories that were wasted. Um, and I mean, it, it stems back to childhood really as well, because I was counting what I was eating from such a young age, but I didn't realize that I was doing it. Um, and I didn't realize that it was part of my eating disorder till I went to therapy and kind of admitted all these things that I was doing. And there were obviously red flags that I didn't realize just because I wasn't aware of something that, that was that big. Um, but yeah, having my food page and having an eating disorder, it goes hand in hand really, because it's just something that I was really passionate about. I was obsessed with food. Um, it was everything I thought about, like every day, all I did was check Google, check Open Rice, check TripAdvisor. Food was the biggest thing that was on my mind. I would wake up and I would worry about what I was eating every single day, where I was going to eat tomorrow, where I was going to eat. Like I couldn't just wake up one day and say, oh, today I feel like ramen. Today I feel like French fries and go get it at the first place I saw. It had to be worth it. It had to be the best of the best. And I got in this negative cycle of food not being able to be something natural to me. And I was stuck in a prison of it. Um, and then growing up, um, I was always a pretty skinny girl. I knew that like I'd been told that my whole life and it became part of my identity. And so I felt like I always had to stay a certain shape. Um, and yeah, it was just a very unfortunate deck of cards that were played, but it made me appreciate um, what I had as well in terms of, you know, being able to explore countries and meet lots of people. It is great, but yeah, it's a, it's a very strange topic. Mm, yeah, it definitely doesn't sound like a very healthy place that you no, were No, it in. definitely wasn't. But did you somehow overcome it or I mean, where are you at so taking the dining job for me was a big step because it took food completely out of my hands um so when I came back to Hong Kong it was probably one of the worst places lowest beat places I'd been in terms of my eating disorder mental health and um taking the dining editor job it was terrifying for me because I wasn't able to choose food. It was terrifying, but it was exciting. And that's a really strange thing about my eating disorder was I felt so happy and thrill of, oh my gosh, I'm just going to let myself eat, you know, because I didn't let myself eat before it had to be so planned. And I had to work out six times a week, seven times a week to be able to get one meal that I chose. And I'd spent two weeks choosing what I was going to have at this one place because that was the best thing. And then having my eating, sorry, having the dining editor job, people were inviting me and I had to go and I had to try what they wanted me to try rather than me having planned it. And it was it just, just sort of embracing. Yeah. So it was terrifying. Um, but 
I just kept on saying it's for work and I wanted to like <laughs> deep down the little part of me wanted to just eat um and I finally just let it happen I mean not finally just let it happen it took ages and I was crying every night and still working out crazy hours but um it definitely was a push that I needed mm-hmm. and when people learned of your eating disorder did you hear any comments that were not so appropriate <laughs> yeah for sure I mean people literally like how can you have an eating disorder like you run a food page of course like okay not of course there's lots of people who I'm so happy for them that they are just passionate about food and love and don't care about how they look or are able to have a healthy relationship with food and working out and work out to feel good and eat to fuel their body but sadly for me there was a mental problem that stopped that um so so many people would say to me oh how can you have an eating disorder like you you know you eat for a living but you social media is so fake you know you can hide and you can show whatever you want and for me I would like no one saw that I'd cry every single night or I would pace up and down and I would work out for three hours a day just to be able to go eat one meal and like I would eat with a lot with other people so I'd take pictures of what they're eating and post it or you know post pictures from a year ago without people knowing there's ways you can hide everything you're doing so there was always an obvious um reaction of sorry not obvious but reaction of you know how can you have an eating disorder you know you literally eat all the time but alcoholics they drink all the time and then they go and they have you know a, an outburst and people don't know what they're doing they don't know that they're drinking in their rooms and then going out and being happy or being sad or being angry you can hide it you can hide everything which yeah, is I must sad say truth. it's a it's a very important issue you just highlight to there because people are just so used to trying to get to know someone on social media and they assume they know mm-hmm. everything about yeah, that person but um if you could give you know some advice um, from what you went through. For example, if, if um, someone happens to have a friend or a family member who's going through an eating disorder, what would be your advice for, for that person? How, how can we support that person? I think the thing that I always went back to is that the feeling of discomfort is temporary. And every day I reminded myself, like when I was crying and I felt my tummy and I think thought to myself oh you're so fat you shouldn't have done that you don't feel comfortable right now I feel anxious with this it's temporary whatever you feel today it can change tomorrow it can change five minutes it can change in 10 minutes tomorrow you'll be a little bit stronger tomorrow you'll feel a little bit better about it and just remind yourself that emotions are temporary yeah mm-hmm and now, well, thank you very much for sharing a very, such a personal story okay. of yours to to help me help our audience learning a little bit more about de- um, eating disorder. But now it's, it's time for us to move on to the next segment. And with that, let us go to Rapid Bias. And in this segment, I'll be asking my guests um, biased questions that they have got asked at some point in life and um, some common biased questions that Asians get asked a lot. So are you ready, Amber? I think so. Okay, let's get started. First question. Amber, you don't look that Chinese. You're not proper Chinese, though. I mean, I'm fully Chinese. I've lived in Hong Kong my whole life, and just because I don't look it, it doesn't mean I'm not Chinese. My last name's Lai, and um, yeah, that's it. But your sister looks more Asian than you. Luckily, with genetics, people can look different ways, and we're still part of the same family. 
So you run a food blog. How can you be so skinny if you eat all the food? You know, I don't have to finish everything that I take pictures of. There's something called sharing, and there's something called leftovers. And look at your blog. How can you have an eating disorder? Sadly, with mental health problems, that's a thing. It's all in your mind, and you never really know what's always going through. So maybe be careful with the questions you ask. And do you really like all the restaurants that you go to? I think for that question, it's very personal, and I think it's all about support. Now, I'm not gonna bash a restaurant and ruin their reputation. You know, you can tell the team their negatives, but we are trying to support and love one another. So, I write the nice things on my blog because that's what I want to be. And do you just go to get free food? Can I be your plus one? No, you can't be my plus one because it's my job and it is my profession, sadly. But next time, maybe I'll ask you. And do you eat dog? I don't personally eat dog, but if it's something that is a wild animal and there's lots of them and you need it for survival, I don't think it's anything different from eating cows or chicken or you know things that you buy in the supermarket. So I think people need to relax about Chinese people eating dog. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amber. Yeah, I I do hope that um through this segment we could um educate our audience a little bit about how to ask um appropriate questions or or how or what not to ask basically. Yeah, I think all of those questions are th- things that you shouldn't just you know ask someone straight away. Obviously, there's a lot more um. Explanation behind them all, but they're not the most you know kind and questions that you would just bang out at a dining table with a friend. But sadly, I have been asked them all many times. Yeah, and with that, um, do you have any final thoughts you could share with us? Um, I would just like to say that being back in Hong Kong and being the age I am and the place I am in my life with you know mental health and self awareness, it's. Seeing how I fit in, and rather than feeling like I need to adapt myself to better suit other people, um, and I think that's something that you only get with time. So for anyone who kind of feels a bit confused with where they are, just be patient with yourself and stay true to who you are, and it'll it'll come through at some point. And when it does, it's great. <laughs> Thank you for the advice, Amber. I think uh, maybe in the near future we'll get you back on Proudly Asian and see, you know, where the journey has, you know, led you to and what you've learned. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify. Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. Signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong. <laughs>